Welcome to the Layer 8 Podcast, Season 2. This season, we'll again hear from the experts. These experts are social engineers and open source intelligence investigators. Sometimes, they'll tell us stories about their experiences, and sometimes, we'll have some questions for them. We hope you'll enjoy them. Welcome to another episode of the Layer 8 Podcast. We have a fun one for you today where we're going to be interviewing three guests where we talk about deception and sleight of hand techniques and how they kind of overlap into social engineering. Uh, We're going to have some fun with them, but first, let's talk to our guests. So first, let me have uh, our guests introduce themselves. I will have our first guest, Chris Kirsch, introduce himself. So my name is Chris Kirsch. Uh, I'm a co-founder at Rumble Network Discovery. Um, been in the security industry for a while. Uh, unlike most of the folks that you have on the show, I think I uh, actually work in sales and marketing. So I'm uh, not. I don't come from the pen testing from the technical side. And but I think the the reason why I'm on the show is probably because I uh, won the DefCon SCCTF a few years ago. And then uh, a year or two later, I gave a pickpocketing talk at Layer 8. And so that kind of puts me in the sleight of hand deception kind of bucket, I guess. Thanks so much. And for our second guest, Lee Anderson, do you want to uh, say a few things about yourself? And welcome to the episode. All right. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a social engineer and pen tester for a financial services company. And I also do some volunteer work with the ILF. And I've had a, a passion for magic uh, ever since I was uh, younger. Um, but uh, yeah, really excited to, to talk a little bit more about how, how I see the two intertwining. Thanks so much. This is going to be a whole lot of fun to talk about these things. And our third guest on this episode, we got Rick Davey. Welcome, Rick. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Richard Davey. I'm a, I'm a corporate red teamer and I specialize in social engineering and open source information gathering. And I've been interested in magic longer than I can remember, which kind of says something about my age. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so sleight of hand techniques, magic. Um, when I got into social engineering, I saw a lot of uh, overlap in the things that you could do with sleight of hand uh, when doing things such as... Um, entering buildings or trying to get data or material while being inside of a building, but also some of the techniques you use in developing magic tricks or mentalism and how those um, cross over into social engineering in the way that you kind of control a situation or use that situation to your advantage. Excellent. So I, I think probably the first place that we can start is a few weeks ago, Richard and Lee and I attended the Human Hacking Conference, which is put on by Chris Hadnagy and his social engineer organization. And what kind of gave me the idea for this episode was there was a very busy chat board in the Human Hacking Conference. And I saw that Lee and Richard were talking about deception techniques. And I thought that would be really neat to kind of talk about. So I think first I want to ask Lee and Richard, like how you kind of first became interested and how you learned those kinds of things. And then afterward, I think Chris's path to it's going to be probably slightly different based on some of the things that he's told me before. But Rick, you said you kind of been interested in magic and sleight of hand for a while. So how did you get started with it and kind of when? So when I was, I want to say about eight or nine years old, um, I had moved homes to a new school, new environment, and I didn't really have a whole lot of friends. One of the things that was going on at the, the new school that I was at was a magic show. And of course, I was, I was infatuated with magic. So I went to the magic show and the guys uh, performing all these, these cool little tricks. It's really easy to, to get fooled by when you're an eight-year-old. Um, but I was like, man, I really want to be able to do that. I want to be that guy that just wows people. Um, I think one of the things that captured my attention uh, with it was the the captivation that you get from people when you're performing magic tricks, even for people who say, you know, I don't like magic. Uh, Magic is is boring. And then you start showing them magic tricks and they're like, oh, man, can you do that again? So uh, that was kind of where the love for magic started. 
and it it would it kind of grew throughout my teenage years but you know you become a teenager get into high school and people are like oh that's that stuff's for kids so you kind of fall off but then when i became an adult and had kids um it was something that i picked up again because i was like oh i want to wow my kids they will love this so and lee how about for you when did you start learning it and why yeah, sure. Uh, similar to Rick, uh, when I was when I was young, I remember watching the David Copperfield specials, and my dad would often bring home little magic tricks from his business trips, and I just I, I fell in love with it. I did little birthday parties for my uh, my cousins, and I always got called out out when I didn't practice very well, and it was just it was it was a lot of fun. And similar as well, teenager, it kind of fell to the wayside. But when I got married and, and started having kids again, my wife, she gifted me some lessons that a local magician was offering. And I did that. And then I, I signed up for membership with the Society for American Magicians and attended a lot of their different uh, lectures. I, I got to learn from Michael Amar, Jonathan Pendragon, um, Wayne Houchin, and, and a number of others. And just I loved it and I got to perform just at like church functions and, and then family events. And then it's, I did that for several years and then we moved and uh, things got a little hectic, but I've been picking it up quite a bit um, more recently again, but yeah. And, and I actually use that in my, the job interview for the, the position I'm in right now. I, I mentioned my love for magic and just loosely kind of tied in how I saw it tie into the the pen testing and social engineering and I don't know if that helped or not but um it just I guess showed my passion for for it that's really awesome that sounds like a whole lot of fun uh, so Chris it sounds as though that those two have been playing with the these techniques for a long time do you kind of have that same type of experience or you've been doing this for a long time yes and no so um when I was a kid I grew up in Germany and um, the town I lived in had a like a, a, a school where you could learn different skills, right? Uh, like a, an afternoon school. And one of the courses they offered was a magic course. So I joined that and I did that for, I don't know, a few uh, semesters or whatever. I don't know what the duration was. So I got into that as a kid and that was pretty cool because it was a, an actual performing magician, probably nobody famous at the time, but you know he was he was earning a living with that and uh, giving us uh, classes and so on. So that was pretty cool. And then I didn't do any of that for a while, and then fast forward, it was my 40th birthday. We were in Paris um, because my family still lives over in Europe, and kind of like uh, you know we had to fly over anyway, and so we decided why not meet in a fun place. So we met in Paris. And my dad got pickpocketed next to me on the train. We we caught it pretty quick. They threw the wallet on the floor. There was some money missing, but at least he got his IDs and all that stuff back. Um, and so I went on a in, into a rabbit hole, kind of like researching what do you do? Like in that situation, you're like, what should you do? Should you like you don't have any proof? So should you hold them up? Should you call the police? Like, how do you prove that? How do you and that was pretty hard. And then I thought, okay, well, if you can't prove it, can you protect against it before the fact, you know, so that you don't get pickpocketed? And there's some, you know, some ways you can do that and make it a little bit harder. At least become, you know, like run faster than your friend when the bear is coming kind of thing. So just make it a little bit harder. And then I got into, okay, how do you actually pickpocket? Because that's kind of a fun skill. And uh, so I started researching that and I, and I, you know, went down the, route of you know YouTube and Amazon, like are there any books there? And I watched some movies and all that stuff. Um, and I found enough where I could have given a like theoretical talk at it at layer eight and so on. And I was I was kind of working up to that. And I researched maybe three months at that point. And my husband was already getting a little bit annoyed with me and on my latest <laughs> my latest obsession. And um, the, the deadline for layer eight was running out. I had to submit, uh, decide what talk I wanted to submit. And I decided to commit and to write the abstract. And I said, all right, if I can just do a you know theoretical talk, I'll be fine. So I've got a fallback. But if I can really figure out how to give a demonstration, that would be cool. So that was uh, on the morning of RSA conference because I, I, I'd woken up early. I'd uh, you know written the abstract and then went to the conference. And I was walking down the aisles, and I kid you not, that same day, 
I stopped at a booth that had a magician there. And so I started watching him, and then he involves me in his routine, and he starts stealing my stuff. And I'm like, hey, this is kind of cool. <laughs> this is like very on topic. <laughs> and I very briefly tried to, uh, to steal his wristwatch when he was doing something. But I, uh, first of all, I really wasn't good enough. And second of all, I, I thought, no, 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 this is his show. This is like, this is not cool if I, uh, you know, mess with this act. So after the um, after he, he was done, I pulled him aside and I said, "Hey, I've got this weird obsession. <laughs> he could, could probably relate if he's doing this as a living." And I said, "You know, can you help me out?" And he was, you know, and I asked him like, um, you know, kind of what what kind of books should I read and like what resources and so on. And he's like, "Well, you could read Joe Navarro and all of this stuff." And I'm like, "Yeah, I get that. That's body language, but like, no, no, no. I want to learn pickpocketing. You know." And he's like, well, this and that. And he, he quoted actually a lot of books that social engineers read, which I found really, really interesting. And I said, no, no, no. I, OK, this is a little bit forward, but can I invite you for dinner or drinks tonight? I want to pick your brain. And he's like, well, I'd love to. But because I'm employed here through an agent, I'm not allowed to give out my number at this conference. And I said, all right, but your name's Rory from Dallas, right? And he said, yes. And I said, well expect my text, right? So I walked around the corner. It was not a big OSINT exercise. I typed in, you know, Rory Dallas Magician. You can do the same. You'll probably find him. And I sent him a text, uh, you know, and I said, hey, I'm this and this guy. Would you like to uh, have dinner or drinks tonight to chat? And he replied within a minute and said, yes, sure, 6 o'clock at this and this mall, right? And so we, we met there. And uh, I picked his brain for about two hours or so. Um, it was really good fun. And he pointed me towards a lot of resources that are on magician-only websites or magician-only stores. I should have found those through Google. But for some reason, I, I did not happen to happen upon them. Right? And those were uh, mostly resources for magicians for theatrical pickpocketing. So it was. Um, how do you pickpocket somebody on stage, right? And um, that that was super super helpful. There's a guy called James Brown. He gives a you can actually uh, order or buy his pickpocketing training. That was super helpful. Um, there's the Encyclopedia of Pickpocketing by Nicholas Bird and James Coates, um, and uh, that's a little bit of an older one. Like the cell phones they steal there are a little larger. <laughs> it's like from the 90s. So um, that was really interesting. And then I, I also found some other sources. Um, for example, there's a guy called Bob Arno. Uh, and there is a YouTube video called Bob Arno, the Pickpocket King, or something like that. So you can, you can look for that. And he actually he's a stage pickpocket, but he does field research in the sense that he's, he goes to places that have a lot of pickpockets. And in, in this uh, documentary, he goes to Naples, and he makes friends with some people who try to pickpocket him. And then they demo to him how they did it. And it's fascinating, because the techniques are a little bit different. So yeah. And then when I went to Layer 8, I actually uh, gave the talk. I gave the live demonstration on stage. I stole like a watch from somebody in the audience. And I had a dummy on stage and showed how to steal stuff from him and so on. Not a dummy, like a, a, an actual person. Uh, but somebody from the audience that I, uh, you know, um, put some some items on, and then I had this this crazy idea of how can we teach this because pickpocketing is really hard to learn because you can't practice it on the streets. Well, you could, but it's you know there are some risks associated with that. I would not recommend that. And if you if you train on a dummy, it's not the same thing as a moving person. So. Um, I, I contacted Patrick and I said, "Hey, I want to do a pickpocketing competition at Layer Eight. What do you think?" And we kind of tried to figure out like, how do we do this? You know, because like, okay, if you steal somebody's stuff and they don't agree with it, we could have a real incident with the police showing up. Um, if somebody touches somebody else and they think it's inappropriate, you have a sexual harassment thing on your on your hands. So how do we get around that? And then Patrick gets so. Sued. And then Patrick gets sued, right? And we 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 always want to we keep you out of jail. So 
what we came up with was, um, first of all, um, we wanted to have people opt in. So people wore this bright green sticker that says, I consent to being pickpocketed, green items only, right? And then I, I made, and I made these at home, it took me a while, I made 100 fake wallets, 100 fake cell phones, uh, and 100 key rings and 100 badges that I just handed out. And they were all neon green. I either spray painted them or I used neon green duct tape and so on, right? So they really stood out. And then people could go around and basically pickpocket each other the entire day at the conference. And it was an absolute riot. And the two people who placed first and second place were um, some high schoolers. There was a high school class at layer eight, and they went all out. <laughs> they really went all out. It was a ton of fun. Yeah, that was so much fun. W one of the things that I always wondered is out of those 100 items each, I, I know at the end of the day, you requested to get all that stuff back. How much did you get back? I got most of it back, I think. Yeah, I got most of it back. I had run a test run at Veracode before. I was working at Veracode the, um, at the time. And they organized these like three-day hackathons where the whole company can do, it's not just a coding hackathon, it's a like do whatever you like hackathon. And I said, all right, great. I'm gonna try this talk. I'm gonna do a test run of the talk and I'm gonna do a test run of the, uh, of the pickpocketing competition. We did that for three days. That was a ton of fun. And I got most of the items back there too. Uh, gave me a little bit of a reputation there, but um, uh, but I, I'd already done given other talks that we can maybe talk about another time. And uh, yeah, I got I actually got most of them back. I still have them at my house. Um, I haven't, you know, the crazy thing is I, I studied this whole topic for like six months just for this talk obsessively and then never did it again. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to try that again. I don't know anything about these techniques that you three know about. I am guessing that there are probably like base techniques, basics that somebody needs to know. So Lee, what are some of the like basics of this whole deception, maybe even pickpocket magic sleight of hand kind of thing? What's the 101 version when you go in for your first class with a magician and the magician says, you need to learn this? What are those things? I think one of the, the biggest thing, and it's one of like the, the three rules of magic is to practice. And that, I mean, you can you can have the the simplest trick that maybe doesn't even have any sleight of hand, but if you if you practice and you have that confidence going into the the show or just the, the encounter with a friend or family member, that that confidence makes all the difference, I think, and it really makes a difference between. Uh, I was just reading up on uh, there's a book called Magic and Showmanship, it's called A Handbook for Conjurers by Henning Nelms. And he, he has some really great points in there just about how the difference between an illusion and a trick. And a trick is just, it's, it's got a little gimmick. You can, you can show it to anybody and it's, yeah, it's kind of cool. But an illusion, it gets people, it stops people from thinking that it's a trick or a puzzle to figure out and they, they get engrossed in the illusion. And, and that, that's just so true with, with social engineering. If you can go in with that confidence and get them to not think logically about what's going on, that that messes with the psychology and allows you to manipulate them or influence them in a way that, that you want to do. Rick, when you've been learning these sorts of techniques, what else are you going to tell somebody? So I think the, the first two things that come to mind for me after practice and, and confidence are definitely um, learning to personalize the trick, right? And this comes from a lot of different uh, magicians, a lot of great magicians. They can perform the same trick uh, in front of you that the magician down the hall performed. And it's going to look completely different. It's going to feel completely different because their personality is different. The way they present is different. The way that they tell you the story of the magic trick is different, right? The way they perform produce that illusion as they're telling you that story and getting you engrossed in the illusion, as, as Lee said, that is different than the other magicians. Um, and I think that's one of the, the primary rules is to personalize. Second to that is control. You, you need to learn to control the situation, control the moment. I need you looking here uh, at my right hand while my left hand performs the illusion. Uh, as opposed to you being like, hey, I see your left hand down there doing that, right? So learning that that 
personalization and control of the illusion um, and controlling the person in the illusion. And that's where the, the crossover for me comes from magic to social engineering is controlling the moment, controlling the story that you are giving the target that you're social engineering and making that personal to yourself. I think one of the, uh, the biggest things that I've learned in both magic and social engineering is the more that you lie to yourself and the more you lie to the target, the harder that social engineering engagement becomes because it's hard for you to keep up with that information. But when you personalize it, you give up little tidbits of yourself in the trick and in the social engineering engagement, it really comes together and you feel comfortable doing it. So it allows you to allude uh, to that confidence that Lee was pointing to earlier uh, in the magic one-on-one that he would give. So I, I think one of the things that I want to do as we go through this is just keep trying to overlay the things that you guys are talking about with these techniques and social engineering. Chris, where Rick was just talking about personalizing it, can you also see personalization in even in your like SCCTF that you did at DEFCON when you're in the booth and personalizing and doing vishing calls? And how much do you see an overlap? I, I'm thinking with like the OSINT that you do, like you have your target, you've done your lookup, you have your information, and now you're going to go after that target. So can you see kind of an overlap of that personalization with the, the vishing and the, and the social engineering that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, you have to make it your own, right? You have to learn the techniques, you have to practice those, and then you have to make them your own. If you uh, just try to mimic exactly the technique that somebody else has done, you're probably gonna fail. And it's the same for a magician, right? If you deliver a magic trick exactly the same way that it's in the book or on the package, then it's not going to be a great trick, right? You have to you have to make it your own and kind of um, and adapt it to your personality. There is one magician I forgot what he's called. What his name is? Uh, Mario something, uh, Magic Mario something like that. He builds magic with robots. He literally takes uh, Arduinos and all of that stuff and makes them perform magic with him on stage. It's insane, right? So he might be performing the same kind of tricks that have been performed for a century, but because he's giving it a different spin, he's giving it a totally different flavor, right? And I think that's the same thing with, uh, with social engineering. You, you have to make it your own. Uh, build on, on something that's already in your personality that you know that you feel comfortable with and so on, and then go with that. Lee, one of the things that you also kind of mentioned was making people not think logically. That seems to have like a huge overlap with social engineering, especially with vishing and getting access into to buildings. Is that kind of something that you've also taken with you when you're doing some kind of social engineering engagements and making sure that you're not really giving somebody a chance to, to think logically and to be able to use that to your advantage? Yeah, for sure. One One particular episode comes to mind, I, I took a social engineer's master's level social engineering class. And in it, they have you do, I mean, you're doing live fishing, vishing, and impersonation. And uh, when I, I was getting geared up to do my my impersonation, and we had, we had, were trying to set it up with a vishing call, and it, it turned out bad. We ended up uh, flagging the person that we were calling, and they were they were suspicious of something going on and i i had to i just decided to go in regardless and i i, I mean it took a lot of prep for making sure i had the right get up i had the right props the right pretext going in and because i was able to again going back to that that confidence i i played the role i was able to play into what this lady was expecting that it didn't even cross her mind that she had received a call 20 minutes earlier that she was suspicious about because I was able to create, I don't know, it's hard to explain because we were really expecting it to fail, but everything that I said, the confidence, whatever, allowed me to get, she was able to take me back, unlock the room, and we were able to, to continue on successfully. But again, yeah, there's a lot that plays into getting them out of that, that, that flags or the, the deer in the headlights kind of a, situation and, and to calm calm them and, and get it, connect with them at the right level. 
Rick, I can see you kind of nodding along. Are there kind of areas that you're doing the same thing and uh, letting people not think logically? So, yeah, and I think to add to kind of what Lee is saying here, one of the positions that you want to be in as a social engineer is you don't want the person on the other, uh, on the other side of the engagement to be thinking. Uh, and the purpose for that is if, you, if they have to stop and think, if they have to indulge in what you're giving them uh, and think about it, they will, uh, they will automatically start questioning the situation that you've put them in. So your goal as you, uh, as you go through your engagement, and I, I've done this a couple of times, is to give them the information that they're looking for and make them feel comfortable with that information. Uh, as you do that and they settle in, everything kind of becomes that script that they expect. They will answer your questions. They'll give you the information that, that you need because you've, be, you've created a story for them in which they have pictured themselves and they're comfortable with, so they're going to continue to work with you. But if you stop them, if you make them think, and they have to revert back and say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right, then they start to, uh, then, then your engagement can start to fall apart. And this is an, an area that uh, actually came up in the Human Hacker Conference. And it seems like one of those things that you just kind of get a feel for. And I want to see what any of the three of you think about this kind of thing, um, where there is the idea that you don't want them to have time to think. But one of the things that also kind of came up is that there are times when whether you're, you're vishing or you have somebody face to face and there's that pause there's nothing being said. And it's kind of don't fill that space, like don't speak, let them speak. But at the same time, are they figuring it out? Are they, are they thinking? And we just kind of said, don't let them think. Any kind of thoughts on how to figure that kind of thing out? Like when to kind of jump into that pause and push them versus just kind of let it sit there and let them speak next. But I think uh, I want to give this one to Chris first, because I think he had something to add to what we were talking about. But uh, I remember him saying that he is in sales and marketing. And uh, this is something that comes up a lot in sales and marketing, uh, the, the awkward pause. So, yeah, yeah, like a pause can be a really good elicitation technique, right? People don't like uncomfortable silences. So uh, when you... Uh, and, and this also works against yourself, right? If you're the salesperson, and for, for a salesperson, a very stressful thing is to you know, write a price on a piece of paper and slide it across the desk, right? When you're presenting your quote. And a lot of salespeople present the quote and kind of like say, oh, here's the quote, but we can totally talk about that, right? The best thing that you can do as a salesperson is Slide it across the table and say, this is our quote, and then put yourself on mute, and you're not talking till the prospect talks, right? Uh, and, and, and sometimes you, you want to actually actively have the prospect. Um, you, you can use uncomfortable silences for other people to blurb something out, right? So I sometimes use that when they're talking about something interesting, and I can use active elicitation techniques, right? where I say, you know, I do mirroring, where I repeat the last few words of what the person said, and then it, it encourages them to move on because I've shown interest in the direction that they're going and so on. Or you can uh, sometimes, like, if they're saying something and you feel that they're a little bit uncomfortable about what they're saying and you have a pause, they, they become even more uncomfortable and they need to fill that void. And they will tell you whatever is the first thing that comes to their mind. Right? That can be sometimes very useful. When I was in the box at the SCCTF, the first call I did, I actually uh, you, I, I didn't use a, a pause intentionally, but I was looking in the script for the next thing. right? And it created a pause on the call. And what the, uh, and, and, uh, the other person on the line said like, oh, you know, like the, the thing that you're describing, that might have something to do with the uh, issues that we had with the credit cards last week. And I'm like, okay, if I was a malicious actor, I would totally encourage him to go into that direction, right? But I was number one on the clock, and number two, I was not comfortable going there. So I shut that down and moved on with my script, 
right? But there was an act, there was a silence that he wanted to fill, and, and in that case, it was to be helpful, right? Not because he was under stress, but it, he wanted to be helpful. So I, I think those can be tremendous, uh, tremendously useful tools. Yeah, I think it's funny that you kind of mentioned about how there are differences with it being helpful and under stress. Because like a minute or so ago, you gave a demonstration of an awkward pause. And I have to admit that even though you said, this is going to be an awkward pause, I, I actually felt it. I was like, should I be speaking right now? Should I be jumping in? <laughs> and I knew it was an awkward pause because you said it was. So that's how powerful this kind of thing is. Rick or Lee, do you have anything to kind of add to that? So I remember... And this is this is kind of where I learned the awkward pause at first was uh, back when I was in my early 20s, I had this job doing door to door sales uh, for UVerse when UVerse first came out. And uh, one of the techniques that I learned was the awkward pause and, and kind of like uh, Chris was saying, what you would get a conversation going, you would you would get them on the hook um, it, be enjoying each other's company and uh, mirroring the last few words of each statement uh, to, to the point where they were like, okay, this, this person's interested in what I have to say. Um, and then you would, you would go, you would lead from that into, uh, all I need to do is uh, to, to get your number down here. What did you say that was again? And then you just kind of stop and you wait. Um, and the rule of thumb given to us was you don't speak until they do because they they realize that you've made a request of them and as they answer that request now they're in that mode of giving you information and now they're like oh well i've already given him this information i can continue with his request or uh, her request and then where that picked up in magic for me was um Last year at the Human Hacking Conference, I took Ian Rowland's uh, course on uh, super psychic, uh, developing the super psychic ability or giving a super psychic reading. And one of the things that you learn there is uh, giving enough information as you're giving the quote unquote psychic reading or the cold reading for them to fill in the gaps because then they're giving information. It gives you more information to work with, but it also allows them to participate and feel like um, feel like you know them because they 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 feel like you've pulled this information out of nowhere. So you know, if I if I was talking to any of you and I was trying to get you on the hook, I would be like, it it, it seems like uh, there's someone in your life. Maybe maybe your name is is I think it starts with a J. I, I've got a J. What is what is that? And then you just kind of pause and you let them up. Oh, oh, you you mean Jessica? Yeah, Jessica. Yeah, Jessica. And then you kind of allude to to that. So that awkward pause works in in that situation as well as it does a sales situation. I think one of the rules that I've always heard is whoever speaks first loses. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a very boring podcast if we do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get no problem losing that one. <laughs> is the awkward pause something that uh, you've also experienced and something that you've used? Um, not a whole lot. The, the times that I, I could see it being more difficult is is on a vishing call because I can see in person you can provide accommodating nonverbals to help make the person feel at ease and comfortable with providing that level of information. Whereas over a phone call, all, you have to have set yourself up well enough that that awkward pause isn't going to lead them into suspecting you for doing something, but actually uh, give them, make them want to uh, share additional information. So let's kind of take this back a little bit to the deception and magic stuff. I'm really hoping that at least somebody has kind of seen this experiment or video before. I think I've seen this video sort of thing where there's kind of something going on in the video. And when you watch it, at the very end, it says, who saw the gorilla walking through in the background? And it's like, the first time you see it, it's like, what, what are you talking about? There was nobody in a gorilla suit walking through the background. And then you watch it again, it's like, holy crap, there was somebody walking through the background in a gorilla suit because you were so focused on whatever was in the front. I can see all three of you smiling. So it seems as though that's something that all three of you experienced. So Chris, you, you, you go first and I'm, I'm hoping that you've seen this kind of video. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's it's really interesting because you direct the people's attention to, uh, in this video, you tell them, count how many times the ball is being passed between the people on the screen. And the gorilla just walks past in, in the background, right? So you direct the attention. Um, I uh, in, in the pickpocketing talk, I played a clip by uh, this guy called James Brown, and he he did something really amazing. He he asked a woman for her ring, right? And he said, "All right," uh, and he put the ring on the back of his hand, like you know, um, and then said, you know, held out the hand and said, like, "What do you see?" and the woman said, like, oh, I don't know, I see a ring, and I see some, you know, like, your skin and the hair, right? And then he moved it closer to his, his watch, and he said, like, what do you see? And then he moved it, and she, again, she couldn't see it. And then he moved it to the other side of the watch on his arm. What do you see? Nothing. And then it dawned on her. He was wearing two watches, and one of them was hers, right? <laughs> so it's, it was in front of her all this time, and, and uh, she didn't see it. So, you know, through your, your movement, through, your, uh, through what you talk about, uh, what you say, right, uh, you can direct people's attention. So he, he placed the ring there. That was through movement, right, and visual. He, um, he said something. And then also sometimes you can misdirect with touch when you do pickpocketing, right? You touch somebody on the shoulder or something like that. Uh, either to condition them that th this is this touch is okay, or to misdirect them from a lighter touch somewhere else. Rick, is that also a video that you've kind of seen? Yeah. So there's another video, um, and I'll have to find the link and get it to you guys of the same thing. And what it is is it's uh, it's actually happening on a stage, and it's uh, three players in white t-shirts are passing a basketball. Three players in red t-shirts are are not doing anything. Uh, or no, they are passing a basketball as well. And then it has the gorilla come through, right? And it's like, hey, you know, count how many times the people in white t-shirts pass the basketball. Um, so <laughs> I remember the first time that I watched this video being completely baffled because I'd seen the gorilla video before. And I was like, oh, you can't fool me. So I watched the video and then it gets done and it says, um, if you rewatch the video, you will see the gorilla. If you've seen this video before and you've seen the gorilla, have you also, did you also notice that the curtains changed and that one of the players in the red t-shirt disappeared? And I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So I went back and I watched it again and I was sure enough, the curtain changed colors. One of the players in the red t-shirt disappeared. And what it, it goes back to that, um, uh, what, do they, what do they call that attention blind spot, right? I was looking for the things I knew should be there. And the things that I wasn't looking for, they changed. And, and um, I had no way of, of noticing that because I was so focused. Uh, there's another really good video uh, in a course that I, I had recently taken on um, open source intelligence gathering and what it is is it says how well do you pay attention and they stage this whole clue like setup and um they go through the the video and all of this stuff changes in the video and it asks you at the end you know who committed the crime and so i'm like oh well it told you who committed the crime that's who committed the crime and it says but did you see this change and you go back and you look at the room from the start of the video to the end of the video and everything is different not a single thing is the same and you're like wow, how did I miss all of that? Uh, so yeah, I've definitely seen the video and there are a lot of uh, experiments out there like that that um, kind of show how you can be conditioned to lose sight of what's actually going on uh, by being handed something else or being shown something else or as I guide your attention to, um, to what I'm saying, you're missing what's actually happening in the background. And as a caveat to that, kind of what you were saying, Chris, about the uh, the ring and the watch and the second watch, uh, I would imagine, and I, I haven't seen this video, but I would imagine one of the things that never was said during uh, his act as he was moving the ring across his arm was watch. Because if you do that, you break that that framing that you have the potential target in and they notice immediately the watch on the arm and they say, oh, that's my watch. I get that. I understand that. Um, so I, I would imagine uh, that that didn't happen. And if it did, that, that would be kind of cool because he was able to lace it in there and she still didn't notice. Um, but 
that's also important for that particular effect is you don't want to break the frame in which you've gotten the target. Yeah, but there are some really funny moments. There's a, a guy called Apollo Robbins who's, uh, you can watch him on YouTube. He gives a TED yes. talk, right? And he will, he will not say your watch, not in the sense of look at your watch to break the framing, but <laughs> he will say things like, oh, can you watch your right pocket? Uh, you know, this this joke is all about the timing, right? The audience gets it. But he so that makes it so funny, right? Because he doesn't he uses those kind of terms that would break the frame in in a funny way. So he's really clever with that. He actually has a talk on I think he did it on TED. Uh, he did a TED talk on that particular on pickpocketing and and misdirecting the target. Uh, and it was really cool because during that talk, you notice, as the audience, you notice all the things that he's doing to the target on the stage. But what you don't notice is by the end of the talk, he has changed both his shirt, he's not wearing a tie, and his jacket is different. So you're like, <laughs> when did you have time to do this? Watching the video, everything, you're like, what? I, I think I know where you did this, but you, you still just can't really pinpoint it down. And it's that whole mis, misdirection of attention. Yeah, so we just kind of talked about a whole bunch of different videos, some gorilla videos and people bouncing basketballs. Please wait until the end of the podcast to kind of go find those videos. But once you're done listening to this, and certainly go watch those videos. And if you haven't seen those kind of things, it's, it, we probably ruined it for you because we told you there's going to be a gorilla walking through in the background. But I, there's probably some others that you can watch in there as well. Lee, I'm guessing that you've seen some of those videos as well, but also you kind of mentioned before about doing some kind of social engineering and along the same lines of this deception and magic. Are, are there, have there been instances in the past when you've been able to use some of these kind of things where it's like, focus on this, focus on the ring. Meanwhile, I'm doing this, or maybe even somebody else on a team is kind of walking in the back door into the server room. Um, no, I, I unfortunately haven't had the chance to do a lot of physical uh, social engineering, but something that I that I have done is I, I was prepping for a, a conference talk um, and I, I was prepping a mentalism routine uh, for it because I wanted to illustrate the same thing as we, as both uh, Rick and Chris have been mentioning with the, the fact that we can that that misdirection, it's kind of a human feature. That, that hyper focus and and to ignoring what's in the background and so many companies want to punish people for those human what what makes us human and that that's one of that's a huge point that I, I really try to communicate to others is the need to uh, for the positive reinforcement instead of punishing that for for clicking on a link and a phishing email that anybody can fall prey to these types of techniques and that again, yeah, the misdirection is just it's built into our our humanity and uh, and anyways, that was the purpose of the talk was to kind of illustrate that I can create this mentalism, I can create this illusion that I am coming up with this card out of nowhere that you were thinking of, and yet I was the one that was laying out certain phrases or uh, controlling the environment so that it happened. Um, anyways, yeah, that's that's just, that's in my area of expertise. That's where I've seen it. That's excellent. Also, another of the things that I, I think Rick was mentioning earlier about breaking the frame or negating the frame. Rick, can you also probably first start off just talk about just in case somebody listening to this doesn't really isn't familiar with the the phrase the term. What is framing? What does that mean? So I'm probably going to do horrible at this. And he called on me and kind of put me on the spot. But um, somebody will have to correct me if I get this wrong. But so to from my understanding, framing is when you when you put a, a person in a particular mindset or position to accept what it is you're giving to them um, or accept what it is that you are trying to get them to work with. And then negating that frame would be uh, if I'm trying to get information from you, I don't want to be like, well, I'm not trying to hack you or I'm not trying to steal your information. Right. Because instantly the first thing you think of is, wow, you're trying to steal my information. You mean you're not trying to steal my information? That's exactly what it sounds like you're doing. Uh, so to, to me, framing is getting a, a, a target in, in a position to give up the information that you're looking for or to work with you or accept what it is you're giving them. Uh, and then negating that frame would be anything that would break that or put them 
uh, in in a position of suspicion or negative uh, impact from what you are doing. And do you have go-tos or rules for yourself about how you kind of make sure that you always stay consistent with that and making sure that you're always keeping people right in that, no pun intended, frame of mind to make sure that they're sticking with it? I don't have any go-to techniques. And, and this may just be from uh, lack of, uh, I don't want to say bad luck, because then, of course, I'll hit a string of bad luck. Um, generally, I, I've had uh, pretty good luck when, when running a social engineering engagement of getting a person um, on track with what I'm, I'm trying to produce or get from the engagement. Um, without any negative kickbacks. I think one, uh, there was at one point in time uh, where I did run an engagement and it kind of blew up in my face because I, I did give off that, I did break the frame of mind in which I had had them. Um, so it kind of just blew up and they were like, I'm not doing this, I'm calling security. And I was like, oh, so we won't do that again. But no, as far as like go-to tactics, uh, pretty much kind of what we discussed at the, the beginning is I practice, I, I prepare, I make sure that I have everything down pat um, on what I'm going to, and this is very important, what I'm going to do or say if it goes sideways, if something were to happen negatively, how am I going to catch myself if I stumble? Uh, what do I expect the person on the other side to say? And you can kind of build out scenarios for all of these things. Uh, of course, you're never going to cover every scenario, but just practicing both a perfect scenario and even what could happen negatively during those scenarios, putting in that time and that effort will give you ideas on how to spin it if it does start to go sideways or if, if something were to happen to negate that frame that you've got the target in. Chris, I want to um, see from you in the like sales perspective and how that kind of fits with negating the frame and keeping your prospective customer in that frame. Like here we are, we're going down this path of I'm trying to get this sale. How does that kind of work in your line of work? Sure, uh, th there is a lot of different examples, but one, uh, one standard example is um, you, you might've heard of something, sometimes it's called prospect theory. I never understood why it's called that, but it's, um, Essentially, people respond more to a potential loss than a potential gain, right? So if you're selling something that saves them money, you can frame it as like you're going to save $1,000 a day, right? Uh, or you can frame it as so that that would be one frame, but not as effective because like, uh, you know, getting an extra $1,000, people don't lose sleep over that, right? If you frame it as a potential loss and you say, Every day from now on, if you don't do this, you're going to lose $1,000 a day. Whether you're awake or sleeping or talking to a customer or doing nothing, you're going to lose $1,000 a day. Motivates them a lot more, right? Same thing, but it's, it's how you frame it. And, and so that can be really powerful. Or also, if you're selling a, um, you know, are you selling something as an expense or as an investment, right? You know, those kind of things. Uh, there are many, many examples, but you can influence how people think about something just by putting it in a certain category. Chris, to your point, is that kind of where the, uh, I, I've heard this a couple of times in a, in a couple of different ways, but that's kind of where the uh, 500,000 versus half a million uh, thing comes from, right? Like, oh, I'm going to give you half a million dollars, uh, whereas, or you're going to lose half a million dollars or you'll lose 500,000. People have a tendency to respond uh, more to the half a million than they do to the 500,000 just because they're like, oh, half a million. Yeah, I think that's a that's an example of framing, right? Because you're you're framing it in millions rather than thousands, right? I wanted to get back a little bit to like all the magic stuff and, and those kind of things uh, because we at a topic earlier where we said, hey, you have to make sure people um, don't think logically. And so what one might think is that you, you know, like you speak so fast that they don't have time to think, right? But I think there is actually different and more elegant ways of doing that, where you present things to people that they intuitively think are safe, even though they're not in that situation, right? I'll give you a couple of examples. One first from the magic world, and then one from the social engineering world. 
when you uh, shuffle a deck of cards, right? And before a game, you shuffle a deck of cards and then you put it on the table and then typically the other person cuts the deck, deck of cards. And you're cutting the deck of cards because somebody might have put some cards at the top or the bottom, like forced them there, or they might have peaked the card at the top or the bottom. So the other person cuts the cards and that way, you know, it's safe, right? So people are conditioned to think cutting cards is safe. Now I'm going to ask Patrick that question because the other two have have you know read more about magic. But if I give you a fresh stack of cards, right? It's fresh out of the box. How often would you have to cut it so that it has a random order? I'm assuming that the deck coming right out of the box is completely ordered. Ordered, yeah. So that's going to take a lot of cuts in order for it to be quote unquote random. Um, so yeah. a, a lot. That's what you'd think, right? Right. A cut is actually not what most people think it is. A cut doesn't change the order of the deck at all. It just changes the starting point. It's like having a Rolodex, right? That you just turn a little bit. The order doesn't change. It's just the starting point changes. So in Magic, if you have a deck where you have a certain order that you've memorized, and you, you know, have the person pick up the deck at any, at any point, and they pick a card, and you can peek the card right above it because they're not paying attention to that, and they could put the card back, and you know, they, they shuffle the deck afterwards and so on. Because you know which card comes next or before in the sequence, you know what card they looked at, right? So cutting the deck is actually not a defense against the, the whole thing, right? So now let's take that to social engineering. So we've taken something, cutting cards, people know it's safe. I don't have to think about it, right? I don't have to think it through logically because I've seen this before and it's a way to prevent cheating, right? Now let's, uh, I, I wanna uh, give an example. It's out of one of the books from Kevin Mitnick where he phones up somebody and he says like, hey, I'm with IT, all of that stuff. And, um, don't tell me your password because that's not secure, right? But can you help me? I'm going to give you a pa uh, like I need to check something out. I'm going to give you a password. Can you change your password to that password so that I can check it out and then you change it back to what you had it before, right? So they know changing, like giving somebody your password is not safe, right? So they don't do that, right? But nobody told them don't type in a password that somebody else gives you, even if you change it back afterwards, right? So what he did is he knew that password at that point, went into the system, created another user or whatever, or created some, some way to get back into the system, then had them change the password back, right? And so he didn't make them think logically because that what they were seeing, like they were in a routine. They'd seen it before, they, they knew it was safe, right? Or thought it was safe and they, they proceeded. And I think, that's where you have a lot of these bleedovers between magic and, and uh, deception and, uh, and social engineering. So another part of social engineering that come up is improvisation, where you have to think of things on the fly. And in the past, at like the Layer 8 conference, we've had improv classes. Rick, I wanted to ask you, how do you see an overlap or an integration working together between social engineering and improv? One of the things that I learned in improv is uh, what they call yes and, and it really gives you the the idea that no matter what comes your way, you're going to respond to it with yes and, and move the conversation along. And I think that's really important in improv, obviously, and then also in just communication, just being that good partner, that that good communicator who helps build the conversation and build the interaction instead of letting it fall flat and die on the floor. And then in that aspect, it's also great in magic because it gives you the ability to bounce off of your audience and bounce off of the, the feedback that you're getting from your audience and, and be able to take that and use it to keep moving along. Um, so improv is, is a great tool, especially if you want to get into social engineering, to, to use to build the, the skills, as, if you will, of communication and, and being able to communicate actively, especially when those nonsensical things kind of come up that you don't know what to do with. Yeah, I really love that. And one of the things that we heard at the Human Hacker Conference is that they really push to never break pretext, which is really going to fit along the lines of that yes and. 
Because when you're doing the social engineering, you never really know what's going to get thrown at you. And in the middle of doing a social engineering engagement, you can't just be like, no, because you need to do the yes and, and then kind of continue on with what you're trying to get. So I wanted to see, uh, Chris, do you also see some of those overlaps where you need to do some yes and with some of the social engineering that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, and. <laughs> um, so the, the, the yes, and is if you if you agree with the other person and take it further and further and further, right, you're removing obstacles, right? It's a more natural conversation. You're going to get along great and so on. When I took uh, the improv classes, I noticed that conversations with random strangers went a lot further and were a lot more fun. Because if you embrace that and just like, Say the first thing that comes to your mind and agree with the other person. It's it's it it uh, you know you can build something really weird and beautiful. The other thing that uh, is an improv is you'll sometimes find yourself in a really weird situation, right? Where you've said something and then the other person yes ended you with another fact and then you throw another fact on top of that and it makes no sense. But one rule of improv is you have to justify it. You have to say why that is totally sane and absolutely fine, right? And that's something that you're going to find yourself, uh, like you're going to find yourself in those situations in social engineering as well, right? Why do you uh, say you uh, are here to repair a server in the server room and you don't have a screwdriver on you, on you, right? That doesn't make sense. So you have to come up with a reason. Like, you know, whatever it is, you have to just jump into it and, and riff off of it. And that, I think, is a really important skill as well, that you're never breaking pretext, but you're also not just shutting up. And, and, and Because if you, if you stop talking, uh, when somebody throws something at you that doesn't work, uh, you, you've probably killed the whole mission, right? Whereas if, if they say, like, but you don't even have a screwdriver, and you say, like, yes, I don't have a screwdriver. I'm such a dummy. I always forget those in the car. Like, would you have one for me, right? So that would be yes ending, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and justifying at the same time. So um, learning those skills, I think, can be really, really helpful to think on your feet. I think that's going to be really good because I, I know you just said that you need to be able to justify it, but everybody also loves to be validated. So anytime that you're going to tell them, yeah, you're right, and also this, it seems as though you could almost even take that conversation in a total 180 degree different direction, even though you just told them, yes, I agree with you. But then the next thing you say is completely different. All they really heard is, yes, you're right. And then you're kind of taking it a different way. And they're like, this is okay. This guy makes sense to me. Rick, I can kind of see you agreeing with that. Yeah, so you actually brought up something uh, that I learned a long time ago, and it it builds on that that yes and, um, which is if if someone ever asks you for a favor, and I think I, I forget where I got this, but if someone ever asks you for a favor, you always hey hey can you help me out? Always say yes, initially, and then they'll follow up with the request, and you, well, I can't really do it on Tuesday. Uh, because I have all these things going on. The only thing that they're going to remember is, oh, you know, that's okay. You did say yes. That's what they remember, right? So you're still be, you're still able to use that to build a, a positive connection or positive interaction. So that yes and is really powerful. And then something else that I was thinking about, and, and I think, Patrick, you kind of brought this conversation up uh, prior to this particular podcast, is the strong use of because. Uh, you were saying, uh, Chris, that, that there's always going to be that justification. Uh, there's an interesting study, um, and I forget the name of the study, so it'll it'll sound really funky. But uh, it, basically, they're they're learning the use of giving reasoning. This came from a Robert Cialdini book uh, that I I read. Um, but they're learning the use of giving giving reasoning. Hey, I need to cut in line to print these papers because I need to print these papers, right? It makes no sense, but because you gave them that feed, oh yeah, 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 sure, you can cut right here, right? So it, it's just learning how to build those techniques to keep that conversation building or keep people in that yes motion. What one last tip do you think that any of you would have? Like at the beginning, I asked. What is like the 101 thing that you learn going into learning magic and deception? Coming away from this now, 
for people who want to be social engineers, what's probably the, the one thing that you see as an overlap of these deception sleight of hand skills and social engineering that somebody can take away from this and continue on with that? Is it going to be to really have the confidence to keep practicing? Because things like phishing, phishing phone calls usually scares the heck out of people. And one of the questions that I get a lot from people is, how do I practice social engineering? And I have my own opinions on how people can kind of practice social engineering. And I'm guessing each of you also have your own ideas because all too often those people are thinking that, well, to do social engineering, it's going to require hacking and doing illegal things. But I, I can kind of explain that I don't necessarily see those things that way. Are there ways that you see that people can practice social engineering techniques in their everyday life or in everyday interactions, Rick? Yeah, so I think one of the things that uh, that people often do is they look at social engineering and they, they look at how it's used to help companies protect themselves or look at how it's done maliciously and they kind of lose sight of the fact that what you're doing as a social engineer is you're communicating. Uh, that's that's all this is. This is this is uh, this study of advanced communication and how to use that communication to kind of get the effects that you want. And then we use those effects to train people how to break that cycle or to step back and take a pause. But the one the the one big oversight that I see a lot of is that people fail to realize that this is just communication. If you want to practice social engineering, talk to the people at your local coffee shop. You go out and you get coffee or you go out and you get dinner or whatever. And not just the the people giving you the service, right? The people who deliver your food or hand you the coffee. Talk to other people in the restaurant. Just spark up a conversation. Be genuine to yourself and be genuine to your interest because if you're not, you're going to come off as disingenuous. Um, so as you talk to them, make sure it's something that you're genuinely interested in and begin to break that that cycle of not reaching out and communicating to people because then when you do pick up the phone to Vish, um, even even uh, in a social engineering engagement or you do happen to try and perform a uh, an impersonation uh, engagement, you're going to be more comfortable because you've you've got that time in learning to communicate with people and and break the ice and get past that nervousness. And even even then, I would say use your nervousness. Uh, it's a it's a it's a tendency and a trait that you have. Use it to your advantage. Uh, find a way to to uh, build that into your your personality or your play. One of the things that I have the hardest time with is shuffling cards um, because I did construction work for a really long time. So I'll shuffle cards, and if if I if I uh, fumble it, it's it's part of the trick. It, it'll just come back and be part of the trick. So use your quirks, use your, your nervousness and just go out and talk to people. That's all, that's all this is. Lee, I want to become a social engineer and it's not something I ever do. How can I learn how to be a social engineer? How can I practice to be better at it? Yeah. What, what Rick said, I mean, that would, that would have, that's my top advice as well. But I, I think on top of that, when we're training people to be aware of social engineering attacks, um, we, we want them to be more mindful and take a step back to analyze those things. So I think when we are out communicating with others, I think it's, it's on us as well as social engineers to don't just fall in line and get engrossed with the conversation, but analyze it. Try to understand, okay, I said this, be familiar with nonverbals and try to uh, try to understand when I ask this question, well, they did this. So what, I mean, start don't don't get lost in the conversation but be able to be be present enough to be able to have that genuine conversation but be able to also analyze what's going on as well and chris your final takeaways from this i i gotta believe you've been asked a million times how do i become a social engineer what are your tips for these sorts of techniques so for for practicing i agree you can you can find um ways to practice every day whether it's you know convincing the person at the front desk that we need a late checkout even though it's against policy you know like all of that stuff the funnest thing i did in that uh direction was uh the company i worked for had just been acquired uh, and i was sent to a management training at 
the headquarters. I'd never been there. Nobody there knew me, right? I had authorization to enter the premises, but I, I said, all right. I, I, I was uh, traveling down there with a, uh, it was a VP of engineering, right, who's not trained in security at all. And I said, I said to her in the car, like, let's play a game. Let's try to get in the building, like on the premises, into the building, all the way there without ever showing proper credentials, right? So I had um, this is for you, like a whole other podcast. Do you want the the short version or the, <laughs> the long version? <laughs> so um, yeah, we uh, we we got in uh, three days in a row. This was a big like f off complex kind of thing, you know, like. They had different gates, different ways to get in, like guards at the door and all of that stuff. I had a fake card that just had my name and photo printed on it, but it was a dumb piece of plastic, right? Uh, and I could have just spotted that in a coffee shop and, and replicated it. That was it. And I think one of us had like a, a, a backpack with a company logo on it, and that was it, right? That was Those were all the credentials we used. We got in three days in a row in different entrances in different ways. It was a ton of fun. And so, you know, like that's an example of where you can simulate a pen test without getting into trouble, right? Don't break the law, um, but look for those kind of opportunities where you set yourself rules for the game. So my rule was don't show proper credentials, only use knowledge that can be publicly obtained, right? The fact that we'd been acquired was in a press release. The fact that there was a training was actually on social media because they told everybody going to the training, tweet about it, right? So, um, so those those were my rules to get in, and uh, you can just look for these kind of opportunities. You know, if you uh, call a provider, you know, like um, decide that you only have the information available that's available about you uh, online, your name your address, your phone number, right? And you phone them and you try to get access to your account anyway, right? Those kind of things. You're not breaking the law, you're just playing a game. You have to stick to your own rules. I, I think that's great. And probably the, the biggest takeaway is don't break the law. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this has been so much fun. It always seems to kind of completely fly right by. It seems like we've been talking for probably an hour or so already. And I feel like I could talk to you three guys all night long. So. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on the Layer 8 podcast. Chris Kirsch, Richard Davey, Lee Anderson, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Layer 8 podcast. You can find out more information about us at layer8conference.com and find more podcast episodes on many of your favorite platforms. We hope you enjoy these episodes as much as we enjoyed making.